The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. When it comes to street photography, there are some photographers you immediately associate with certain places. You say Joel Meyerowitz, and you think New York. Gary Winogrand, Southern California. Daido Moriyama, Japan. Matt Stewart, London. Though these photographers have photographed in many different locations, they are intimately connected to these places. You can say the same thing about photographer Fadi Bukaram, whose life and work is connected to his homeland of Beirut, a country that has unfortunately had to contend with years of civil war and then occupation. And though these events have resulted in painful experiences and memories for this photographer, Fadi has and continues to discover and capture beauty in the land that he calls home. Well, Fadi, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to, to have you. Thank you for having me. I, I wanted to talk first, before we talk about photography, about growing up in Lebanon, because you grew up there during the Civil War and the, and the occupation. And I, I really would like to hear your story in terms of what it was like for you and your family growing up during that time. Well, you know, what, I, I, was a, I was a kid when, when, you know, during the Civil War. So the, the Civil War started in 75 and I was born in late 78, so, and it ended in 1990. So I kind of, to me, it represents all my childhood. But the thing is, as hard as it was, and it was awful, I thought that this was normal. I thought that this is how everybody lived everywhere else in the world. Hmm. I mean, it didn't start occurring to me that this was a singular, or not singular, but a, not a rare occurrence in the world until I you know, I entered into my teens. So yes, it was hard, but at the same time, that was normal life to us. I thought everybody grew up in a bomb shelter. So <laughs> in, in terms, I know there were, a lot of people sort of focus on, on the violence. And yes. I'm more curious about the day to day in terms of how you in, interact with other family members, neighbors, friends, you know, because you still have to sort of live out your life in the midst of all that unpredictability and all that chaos, especially with the perspective of, of adulthood. When you look back at it, yes, what were some of the sort of things that you realized were unusual, that were odd, that were not normal? Well, the one thing mainly that wasn't completely normal is that the school year, at least three or four of my school years when I was growing up, were never complete which means it's like we had to cut the year short at some point because there was war. And then the next year we do like a, you know, a concentrated program so that we would follow up. So that, that part was a little bit, you know, that's how you realize that there's something a little bit off mm -hmm. as in the every, the day to day thing. This is like you grow up 
you grow up being cautious that the, you cannot go certain places, that you have to be contained within your neighborhood, within even within the apartment building where we grew up. Because I remember that the hallway, there was like a big hallway in the apartment building, and that's where we were allowed to play. We weren't allowed to go outside, except sometimes when we would, we would sneak out. But I think for me, that created the sense as I grew older, when I started traveling, I wanted to see the world as kind of a reaction of being cooped up in that hallway for so many years. You know, my both of my parents grew up in a dictatorship uh, in the Dominican Republic during the 40s, yes. 50s. And, and from what I've gotten from other family members, because my parents were never really upfront about talking to me about it. They just felt like, ah, that's behind us. Why do you want to bring that up? But in talking to other family members, one of the things that, that I think life under a dictatorship uh, had was this sense of paranoia that you constantly had all the time that you had to live with. Not just in terms of violence, but just in terms of, of mistrust. You know, you had to be very careful about who you talked to about what. And that that sort of was something that sort of colored how they saw other people. And I was wondering whether there was anything similar that you experienced growing up in Lebanon. That actually happened after the Civil War ended. Because during the Civil War, it wasn't the system itself where it's like we weren't paranoid of whatever government we had. If anything, we didn't have any form of government. What was, it's like, it's called the Civil War, yes, but there were many foreign parties involved in it. So it was the Lebanese against other Lebanese. It was the Palestinians. It was the Israelis. It was the Syrians. And they were all fighting each other at one point. And what happens during these times is that you start having these enclave, enclaves, like where the neighborhood where I'd live, it used to be that it was homogenous and everybody, like there wasn't that sense of mistrust until the last couple of years of the war where people within that same neighborhood started fighting each other and all that, and then people started getting cautious. And even after the Civil War ended, there was still the presence in the areas where we lived of the Syrian army, and they were known to be a police state. So people were scared the whole time. And how, not to jump ahead to photography, but even after the, the war ended and the Syrians were gone and the Israelis were gone, when you wanted to take photographs of people, you would always see this fear on people's faces of being photographed because they didn't know if this was going to go to somewhere you know, mm -hmm. to a government yeah. place, like something like that. Eventually it passed away, but with the refugee crisis in Lebanon, uh, in Syria, when the Syrians started coming to Lebanon, you could start feeling this all over again from the Syrian refugees. You would be taking photos and you would sense that they were deathly, you know, they were afraid so much, which for me was enough of a reason to stop shooting you know, street photography in these areas, because it's really not worth it. Why do you want to scare people half to death? They were living in a police state, and this is the result of it. So it's not worth it. When when you had the opportunity to see images during during that time, how, how did that jive with your, your experience of your life there? Did you see that there was a disparity there? Did, did you think it was an accurate reflection of what was going on? How did you sort of perceive photography uh, during that time? Let, let me let me put it this way. When you grow up, you know, in a war zone, and especially the last two years of the war, we're talking like 88, 89, part, a little bit of 
1990. It was so violent in the areas where we live that you invariably develop some form of PTSD. Hmm. And it takes time to get over these things. However, when it comes to photography specifically, since you mentioned it, the one, uh, the first time when I started seeing extensive photos of the Lebanese war was seeing Don McCullen's book, which is Beirut. And I didn't buy the book. I just saw the photos online. And the first time I actually started seeing the photos, they were to me so real as to what I experienced that I immediately could not continue looking. Mm-hmm. And it's the main reason why I can't bring myself to actually buy the book. It's just too, it's still raw, even, I don't know, 25, 27 years down the line. Wow. So yeah, it does reflect the reality of what we used to live. And unfortunately, I, don't, I still haven't gotten over it completely when it comes to that. You said that uh, part of having this experience was this desire to, to travel the world and discover how other people lived. Yes. Tell me about those first experiences and how that sort of gave you a perspective in terms of not only how life was, but how you could and did interact with other people. After I graduated from college and I did military service, I, I used to work at a computer programmer. So part of my job was to go to Dubai a lot because our company was there. So the first time seeing people, it wasn't that much of a difference. I mean, yes, they are different people, but we were still could communicate. You know, there's a similarity in the culture, even, even though they're not completely similar, but there's just a little bit of similarity that I didn't get to experience the whole difference. My first time was actually... Uh, to go to a foreign country, like a real foreign country, was when I went to the United States in 2004. It was just for a visit. And it was surreal in that, how to say, how normal everything looked. Not normal, like how organized, how people were living as if they haven't lived a war in their life. I mean, it's it's obvious now to me, but at the time, you don't realize it until you start talking to the people, right? And a year after that, as it happened, I moved to the United States to do my master's in San Francisco. And unfortunately, since we're still talking about the war, it was a result of the war thing, because uh, in 2005, the prime minister in Lebanon got assassinated with a big, you know, TNT bomb, and I happened to be a present at the scene, and I got slightly wounded with that. So I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I can't, I can't deal with that anymore. Mm. So I just moved to the U.S. I applied to the first university that would take me, and I just went there. And that whole move to me kind of changed my life because it allowed me to experience life differently, a life that is unstressed, a life that has no wars. It's it's weird to say it now, but yeah. yeah. And and how did photography come to play a role in your life? Photography, I used to mention that in that when we grew up, we didn't have a camera at the house, right? Photography wasn't something important. So it was that whenever there was an important occasion, let's say, I don't know, Christmas, you know, something like that, there would be someone else from the family, the extended family, and they would take a picture and then we would get it. So from all the time where, you know, from when I was born, me and my siblings, until I was in my teens, uh, we have one photo album. 
I think it's just like barely one fo- one photo album. And this album had a lot of people who were, how to say, they weren't in Lebanon anymore or they were dead. Because of the war, so many people left the country. I mean, my extended family is spread all over the world between Australia, the Caribbeans and the U.S. and all that. So these photos kind of represent all these people who don't exist anymore. So there's this whole memory attachment to it. Mm. So that was my first, first, uh, how to say, realization that photography is that important in terms of memories. But I didn't get, uh, how to say, I didn't start doing it until, I mean, really do it until I moved, until, until I was in San Francisco. That's, that's when I first started. And was it a class where you, did you, did someone no, sort of? <laughs> no, no, I was, uh, I, I mean, I'm an engineer and I was doing a master's in finance in San Francisco. Okay. So I have nothing to do with that. So it was uh, funny enough. Uh, when I moved to the U.S., I was working, and it was, uh, how to say, I filed my first taxes. I didn't know that people did that. And then it turns <laughs> out I was owed a refund. I was like, oh, extra money. So I bought myself a camera. That's it. So I bought myself a camera due to, the, to how important I thought photography was to me. And from that, I was, I wish I could say, like, I was photographing import, photographing important things. But no, I was photographing homeless people in San Francisco. Why? Because that was part of the culture shock for me. Because even with all the wars and whatever happened in Lebanon, I had never seen a homeless person in my life. Whereas San Francisco was literally littered. Like there were people, homeless people everywhere. So now I understand. Now I'm more, how to say, I'm aware of the problem. But at the time, me being Lebanese going there, I thought that this was extraordinary in how bad it was. And I was taking photos of that, thinking that, this is something that should be documented. Of course, I was, how to say, <laughs> ignorant about these things. And then you realize about the exploitative factor and you stop doing that. But that was my first experience really photographing people. And how did you sort of develop that uh, an awareness of sort of the legacy, the history of photography? When did you start determining that this was something that you wanted to do seriously? It, it was actually after I came back to Lebanon because I was in San Francisco from 2005 to 2009. After that, I came back to Lebanon and I joined a group called the Beirut Street Photographers. And during that time, a photographer called David Gibson came from the UK. He's a member of In Public and he was giving a workshop. So I decided I wanted to attend the workshop. And the first day of the workshop would just, was just De- David showing us the history of photography from uh, Mario Giacomelli to Cartier-Bresson to to Duano, to all these people, you know, from the from the start until these days. So you could say that 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 was an eye opening day for me. Hmm. I had no idea that this sort of beauty existed. So that was my my first day of actually being hooked that this is what I want to do. And how did your approach start to change as a result of that that time with David? Uh, it changed to the worse, actually, to begin <laughs> with. Okay, because. When you're looking at street photography, the, the late history of it, we're talking like the early 2000s until now, there's a lot of this uh, approach of, how to say, the puns, the jokes, the juxtapositions, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So this is what we're shown. And at first, when you don't know, you think, ah, this is nice. I want to try that. 
And this is this was one of my, one of the most frustrating periods of starting to do photography, because at the same time it's difficult to do these things, and also when you do it, you realize, well, so what am I doing? What's the point of this? You know, it's like you start to feel the cheapness of it all. That's what I mean. That was the first phase of me doing photography, and fortunately, I realized that that I realized that I need to change my. my approach and then i change expand a little bit about the cheapness what, what exactly do you mean by that well okay the thing is how to say you see a lot of photos of i mean you used to see now it's it's not as common anymore but let's say you see a photo of someone who is overweight in front of a poster that's an ad for a gym calling lose weight something right mm -hmm. or an ad for someone who is you know for glasses and someone who's blind like this is the kind of photos that i used to see and looking at them now for me it's like what are you trying to say what why how to say why are we joking about these things and why are we trying to be smart about photography I'm sure there are people who still like to do that, but for me, this is kind of pointless. Mm -hmm. What are you adding or what are you developing in this whole path that is photography? So what, what did you start turning your eye to that was more, in your, in your perspective, more substantive? The people who live around me. Kind of, uh, how to say, I don't want to cheapen the expression, but... A sense of time and a sense of place. That's what I wanted to do. Trying to capture something extraordinary within the ordinary. Make the actual, the banal, the make a boring scene interesting visually. Uh, that this is, this is what I just photographing the people around me without trying to be smart about it. I got it. Yeah. Um, what were part of some of the challenges for you in achieving that and being able to do that? As I mentioned first, it was you have to get, how to say, the people you're photographing, uh, you don't want them to be scared of you. I'm not talking generally in the world. I'm talking here in Lebanon specifically because there was a period that they were still coming out of the war and they were still afraid of the cameras and all that. So there was the challenge, the two challenges actually. One, I wanted to not be afraid of taking photos of these people because I'm shooting, you know, candid. And two, you don't, you don't want to scare these people themselves. You want to, if they see you taking a photo, you want to develop the skills so that they're not afraid because it's always about the subject for me. It's like, it's not worth it if you take a good photo and then scare someone half to death. That's very selfish, I think. So these are the things that I had to learn to do. And I'm still, I'm still learning. So what exactly did you have to learn? I mean, because when I look at your work, you're not working from with a 70 to 200 at a distance. You're, you seem to be working with a moderate to wide angle lens. You're fairly close. Yes. So beyond this sort of the technical aspects of the camera itself, what did you have to learn to do in order to be able to get up close to people and also often maybe diffuse the situation or make it so that it didn't escalate? Well, the, it's going to sound cheesy, but the most important rule really is just a smile. It's just, I mean, I'm taking, I'm talking, I was talking about, I'm taking photos of people who are scared of the camera, but they're also scared of strangers because this is people coming out of the war. Mm -hmm. And this is not just them. This is also me. 
I mean, I'm, 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 how to say, I'm Lebanese just like them. And I used to not like strangers. And I still have an issue with developing a rapport with the people I'm photographing here in Lebanon. So the first thing is just that don't be menacing. Don't come with the body language of someone who is menacing or threatening. Be, you know, smiling. If someone, I took a photo of someone and they object and they said, delete my photos. Like, yes, I will delete your photo. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I'm not here to, how to say, you don't want to make enemies. Why? 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 It's a, a photo is not worth it. I'm not a photojournalist, so it's not what I'm doing. Right. Do, do you find that there's a difference generationally in terms of the people who react to, you know, your photographs, you know, people your age or older as compared to people who are younger, who grow up in this sort of cell phone age? Uh, yes, but the opposite of what you'd imagine, really. Really? Okay. I, yeah, because... It's weird to me that here you'd find the older generation now are more receptive of being photographed than the younger generation. But that's for a completely different reason, I think, because now you mentioned the cell phone generation, right? This is the generation that has everything manicured. I'm not talking about the look. I'm talking about photos. You know, like the Facebook photos, the Instagram, they have to be perfectly posed, perfectly lit, Some, you know, that that approach. Mm. So I think I mean, I think this is the reason why the idea of someone taking a candid photo of them that does not fit the image that they have of themselves. That's a problem. You know, one of the things about practicing street photography is like most people don't have any concept of it, regardless of where you're you're shooting. But as, yes. uh, but especially there, where someone with a camera who looks like they're pretty serious about it, we're assuming to yes. be some sort of journalist. So when people, you know, see you, they approach you and they ask, "What are you taking pictures for?" Yes. What, what, how, how do you explain it, and what is their reaction to to you? Do they think you're nuts? Do they have any well, understanding of what you're well, doing? Well, I, I've uh, I've developed a how to say like a mini scenario that I started believing myself because at first it was kind of like made up, which the first time someone asked me and I didn't have an answer, I said, well, I'm taking a photo. I mean, I'm taking photo photos of Beirut and I'm not planning to do anything with them for now, but hopefully in 10 years, if I have something good enough, I want to make a book about it, about what Beirut looked like in these years. Mm. So that came up as kind of a mini lie I think. Yeah. But then the more I started repeating it, the the more I thought, well, but well, why not? I mean, why not do a book eventually about Beirut during these years? And the thing is, I didn't expect people would react so positively about it. So for them, I was like, oh, good luck, you know, and then they'd give me their contacts in case I want to publish the book. They'd want to see it and all that. And of course, there's no book yet. There's no, <laughs> it's just, a, it's just an idea that would take years to happen. But that's what I did. You know, when you live in a place for a very long time, there's a lot that you kind of just take for granted. You see it, but you don't really see it. You know, you don't really yes. take it in and observe it. And I'm wondering how having a camera and being so dedicated to your photography sort of changed the way that you saw Lebanon and, and what things did you discover as a result of having the camera in your hand? Well, you mentioned about, you know, taking photos over and over at the same place. And of course, there's the, this challenge of keeping like a fresh eye on a location that you're seeing over and over again. And back in the day, I mean, in between 
2009 and 2012, I used to work in a bank downtown. So the only photography that I did mostly was during my lunch break. Every lunch break for one hour, I'd take the camera and I'd walk around the neighborhood where we, you know, where we're located. And doing that for three, four years is kind of like you have to be forced to see something new every single time. What I did learn about it and that that's after photographing, let's say, in Lebanon and in San Francisco and in New York, that doing street in Lebanon has a little bit more difficulty when it comes to the people because you don't see this spontaneity or abandon that with which people behave on the street. In Lebanon, people are more reserved because there's this whole idea about they care about how they are perceived by other people. So in New York, you might see someone running on the street. In San Francisco, you might see someone, you know, uh, walking with a dog and an umbrella and they're eating ice cream, you know, feeding the dog ice cream and all that. You won't find that in Lebanon because that would be considered inappropriate. Mm. So it was a bit of a challenge to actually find candid moments that are more subdued than where you'd find somewhere else. You know, one of the projects that you worked on was you came to the United States and you started photographing towns with the name of Lebanon yes. uh, across the country. That was my last project. So tell me about the inception of that of that project and and why you felt it was important for you to do. Okay. Well, that project is actually it goes back to when I first moved to the United States and the reason why I moved to the United States. So in 2007, you know, uh, what do you call the street view in Google Maps was starting to become more, you know, advanced. And I was in San Francisco and I wanted to see a street view of the location where the bomb came up, you know, where the prime minister was assassinated. Mm -hmm. So I just Googled Lebanon in the Google Maps. And instead of giving me my Lebanon, it gave me Lebanon, Oregon, which is the closest one to California. At first, I had no idea. I was like, why would there even be one Lebanon, you know, in Oregon? I thought it was interesting, but then I let it go. But then eventually I found out that there's a Lebanon in Pennsylvania, a Lebanon in Kentucky and all that. So I thought, well, how many are there? So I compiled a list because you, the U.S., you know, they have public records of all the town names in all the country. So it turns out there's 47 of them. And I thought, well, that'd be a good retirement project to do when I, you know, <laughs> when I stop working, you know, decades and decades ahead. But the idea kept in my mind until uh, December 2015 when I was in Baghdad and I had a mini experience to related to the war. And I decided, you know what, maybe that's a good idea to quit my job. <laughs> I need a break. So I just came back and you know, resigned and left the U.S. So tell me about visiting all these different towns called Lebanon. It must have been an interesting experience interacting with people, especially when they discover that you were from another country called Lebanon. Yeah. What did you learn ab about how people sort of perceived your country and how you sort of uh, perceived them? Uh, to be honest here, I mean, I chose the timing of the of the trip to coincide with the elections because i mean if i wanted to do a trip i thought why not to why not do two in one if you will mm -hmm. i left it was between october and march uh, october 2016 and march 2017 so uh, and 
uh, as I was researching, I realized that a lot of these Lebanons, most of them actually, are in the middle of the country, right? I had never been in the middle of the country except once. So I used to go to New York a lot. I used to live in San Francisco. I had no idea what's in the middle. So what I knew of these people was from what other Americans used to tell me and what yeah. characters you see in movies and stuff like that. So I thought I might have to be really careful about these things, except until I actually did the trip. And I, I mean, I still have to say I was really enormously surprised at how nice these people were to me. I mean, they didn't have to, or maybe I didn't expect them to be. So I had really low expectations. <laughs> so when they were this hospitable, uh, it was uh, it was very heartwarming to me. So I I've, I mean, I grew up here in this country, but yeah, I had sort of the same experience when I started visiting the uh, the middle part of the the country. Yes, um, you realize that uh, the people who are more paranoid and reticent about talking to strangers if people are on the coastal cities, you know, yeah, New York yeah. and Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's like, you know, you go out into different, you go into the inner part of the country and it's amazing how easy it is to strike up a conversation with a perfect stranger. Yes. Well, I got a story here is that believe it or not, I mean, before, uh, after working at a bank, I used to work in a consulting company where we used to, how to say, consult, basically do work for the IRS to try to catch people who are U.S. expats who don't pay taxes. That's the summary of it, right? Uh, okay. So there was one place where a guy was living off the grid because he doesn't like the government and all that. So you know the type. It's kind <laughs> of like they're, they're just like anti-government and all that. So I wanted to talk to him, and surprisingly, he was so nice talking to me. I mean, I'm Lebanese. I look to, I mean, I look either Arab or Hispanic, depending on where you go in the country, what people, you know, assume that you are. Right. That didn't matter at all to him. He was as nice as possible. But then he asked me what I used to do for a living. And I mentioned the <laughs> IRS and he went crazy and refused to talk to me after that. So he was fine with me being from Lebanon. He was not fine with me <laughs> helping the IRS <laughs> because they're robbing the American people. That's yeah. what I think. Oh. So, I mean, as far as stereotypes go, it's like he, I mean, this was not a racist man, apparently, but he was that much anti-government that he would refuse to talk to me after that. That's great. How, how did your approach to photography, how was it different as a result of doing this, this project? I mean, it was the first time where I knew I had to force myself to talk to people, to talk to people, because I know this wasn't this was not going to be, you know, me walking on the streets and taking photos left and right. Mm -hmm. For one, there were no people on the streets. Most of these towns I was in, they had less than a thousand people. So it's not like you're going to see, you know, loads of people walking on the street. And all right. That. What I did was two years ago, I was in Istanbul and I was attending, it was at Photo Istanbul, and I was attending a talk by Anders Peterson. And he talked about how he approached photography. He said he goes to a bar, the same bar, every single time. And then he goes with his camera, put his cam puts his camera on the table or on the bar just to announce to everybody that he's a photographer. And then he would go and talk to people and ask them, can I photograph you naked? 
Well, that's Anders Pearson. I, I was not going to do that myself. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know his photography. Yeah. So I decided to adopt what he said, minus the naked part. <laughs> it was just, how to say, even like when you talk to people and you show them the camera, it's like, can I have a conversation with you? And then we start talking. And then it's like, well, can I take pictures while we are talking? And most of them were actually very accommodating. So... That's that. That's the approach. I mean, in in the middle of the country, you know, you have two or three kinds of places where you go, where to meet the people in small towns. Right. Either go to the bar or you go to the churches. Bars are more interesting than churches in terms of the photographic opportunities. But yeah, I spend a lot of time in bars. So, and, and one of the things about doing that, especially in a small town, is that within no time, everybody knows who that guy is. Oh, hell yeah. You know, it, they spread the <laughs> word quickly and all of a sudden, oh yeah, I heard about you. Well, well, I mean, okay, let me tell you this one. I was in Lebanon, South Dakota. By the way, it's like, now I'm used to it because the country where I live is called Lebanon, but most of the towns in the U.S., these towns are called Lebanon, not Lebanon. So, I mean, they made sure to tell me to say Lebanon, not Lebanon, so that I don't seem like a foreigner. Okay. As if my looks won't give me away. But different story. <laughs> I mean, I was in Lebanon, South Dakota, and I was in a bar. And the bar is run by the municipality and three women who are the barmaids, all in their 70s. The whole town has 36 people. So I was talking to these bar, bar barmaids, you know, great people and all that, but the first couple of days where I went, there was no one. However, on the third day, they told me, well, you can come on Thursday because it's a uh, dark night. It's dark night and all the town's going to be there. So I go on Thursday and lo and behold, the whole town was there. And as soon as I walk in, the first, <laughs> the one of the barmaids tells the people, hey, this is uh, fatty. So everybody you know, it's like, you know, they, they scream. It's like, Hey, fatty, welcome. Blah, blah. It was like, like a scene from Cheers where that guy, Norm, when he walks into the bar and everybody screams Norm. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> I mean, I hadn't met any of these people, but word spread so fast that as soon as I walked in, people started coming, talking. It was like, Hey, you're from Lebanon. They told us about you and all that. So that was a, a bit of a surreal moment, but it was nice. So how did, you know, you being able to have the opportunity to practice approaching people, talking with people, help you with the work that you've done subsequently? I'm not exactly a very sociable person, let's say. You know, I usually don't like talking that much to strangers and all that. And believe it or not, that helped me a lot because when I first started talking to people, I was a little bit shy because these are strangers. So I wouldn't do that much talking. I mean, I would ask a few questions and then I'd be mostly silent. Mm -hmm. And given that these small towns, there's a lot of older generation there, you would not imagine how much these people would talk if you just give them the opportunity. Oh, yeah. yeah. So me not talking actually helped because they kept talking and talking. I mean, I was listening. It's not like I wasn't paying attention. And for them, me listening to them, which maybe they don't have that many opportunities for people to listen to them. I don't know. But that made the rapport much, much easier because it's as if we've known each other for a long time just from me listening to them. Yeah, and I bet you they had some stories that they've told a thousand times of 
to you, you were right. hearing it for the very first time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you're, you're part of a collective, the Observe Collective. Tell me about how that came about. Yes. Uh, how, how, how did it start? Yeah. How did you, how did it start and how did you become a part of it? We've all known each other from Flickr. I mean, back in 2013, Flickr was much more active than, than how, what it is these days. I mean, right now it's not that much, but back in the day, there was these groups and we were learning a lot from Flickr and all that. So we were in this group, uh, critique group. And we kind of became friends online. And then one of the people there, her name is Danielle Houghton. She said, well, how about we make a collective? And the whole group was only maybe 16 or 17 people. And of these people, we, the 14, the initial 14 said, well, yeah, let's do a collective. I mean, we, of course, we respected each other's work photographically, but more important than that, we actually liked each other as people. We got along. And I mean, it's, it kind of seems like an obvious requirement, but right. on Flickr, there was, you know, it's not always that people got along that well. There was a lot of bickering and all that. So it just happened that we were in a group that where people liked each other. So we said, yeah, let's do it. So yeah, this is amazing, talented people on there. I was looking at the, at the work and it is not only is it diverse and wide ranging, but the, the, the compositionally, uh, I see people doing some things that really are exciting for you as a photographer. I can't say thank you for them, but I would agree <laughs> because like I said, I, uh, I love their work. So, so what, what have you learned as far as being in, in an environment where people are not just generous with, you know, liking something, but don't hesitate in terms of giving you a really honest and detailed critique of your work. Well, it's funny that you mentioned because just a few months ago I was in our, you know, private Facebook group. I, was blaming them for making me, you know, for getting me to a place where I actually quit my day job and pursuing ph photography. Because, oh, like, wow. if it weren't for you people, I wouldn't have done that. Because seriously, I mean, all the development that we did in terms of supporting each other, it's not just about the critique. It's also about the resources. I mean, you know, learning photography is not just about our work, but about people, other people's work out there. So it's always like, well, look at that person who's doing that kind of work. And it reminds me of your work this way and this way. And maybe you should follow this approach. So this kind of, you know, generous environment, as you mentioned, that was just, uh, it fosters good work. That, that's it. So, so what finally, you know, made you take the leap to go into a photographic career rather than the, the business that you had been in before? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, it was just uh, this Baghdad trip that wasn't exactly perfect where I thought I need a break from this sort of Middle Eastern world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, dur during my work, I used to have to do a lot of travels and that trip there was reminded me a little bit too much of the times of the war in Lebanon. So as it always seems the case. Like my move to the United States in 2005 was triggered by the assassination and my quitting my day job for good was triggered by this whole trip to Baghdad. So mm. I guess I got to be thankful somewhere, somehow to these experiences. But yeah, it was that trip. And what kind of work are you interested in doing? Because a lot of people are probably familiar with you with, in terms of your street work, but are you look, what kind of, what kind of photographic work are you hoping to, to, to achieve? Well, first thing first, I want to repeat the trip because ah, okay. I'm not done. I mean, six months, the 
I mean, I was for six months in the U.S., but five months on the road. These were good, but these are nowhere near enough for an actual project where I want to do. And the second project, which I'm hoping would be at least funded by the government, our government, because, I mean, the first trip I did it for my savings, which is I knew no one was going to fund it. So I was like, okay, let me kill my savings account. But now that it's done, <laughs> I'm going to try to get the government to fund me, which is I'm going to try and do kind of like a try to find the early Lebanese immigrants of the 19th century and how their culture changed and what have they have retained from their old culture and all that. I mean, any opportunity to allow me to go on the road again and talk to people and take photos, this was too much of a good, I mean, too good of an experience for me not to repeat. And mm. I want to do it again. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Uh, you know, just because I was just messaging her right now, Kate Kirkwood. Okay. And why? Uh, why? Because Kate, uh, how to say, to me, she has defined what is rural street photography. I mean, when I went to the U.S., yeah, I photographed in rural places and all that. But wait, I mean, she is the standard of what is rural photography on how to apply street photography aesthetics on the animals who are on her farm. And this is, I mean, I love her work. I can't say, I mean, I was just messaging her as like, come on, do a book already. So, yeah. <laughs> I've not heard of her. I look forward to checking out her work. That's a great oh, suggestion. Oh, she's absolutely amazing. Oh, awesome, man. Well, yeah. thank you, Fadi. It was a real pleasure to have a chance to do that. Well, thank you. Thank you. you. It was nice. Thank you. I love that. Thanks again for joining us and for Fadi for sharing his story. To find out more about him and his work, visit FadiBukaram.com. And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes Store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on our donate button on the candid frame website or the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free candid frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.